Cool. Well, we are taking a little break from our series on the book of Luke. If you've been around for a while, you'll know that we're doing a bit of a systematic walkthrough of Luke. And uh, for just a few weeks before we get up to Advent, we're pausing to look at another, just an amazing character uh, in the Old Testament of the Bible, a guy called Moses. And I've been quite excited for a while about the idea of taking some weeks to talk about Moses with you. Not primarily because he is like this big, almost like patriarchal figure of the Judeo-Christian religion after Abraham. He's like the guy who is kind of the father of lots of things. Not primarily because he's, you know, the guy who gets the Ten Commandments. Not even because of the Prince of Egypt kind of stuff. You know that amazing, ever seen that, that incredible film from particular age group of people have seen that film. Um, not, even, uh, not even because of that, but, but actually because Moses' story starts in a really remarkable way. Um, his earthly ministry starts with this profound revelation of who God is and who he is in God. And uh, when I was about 16 years old, I got dragged along to a really muddy field in England and this, with about 12,000 other young people. And I heard a guy called Louis Giglio, some of you know Louis, from, he's from Atlanta, Georgia, speak about uh, this revelation that Moses gets about who he is and who God is. And when I was 16 years old, if I say it like transform my life, that's probably even slightly an understatement because this little bit of scripture, this revelation has really been like the foundation of my faith and everything that I feel like, our, like Laura and I have as a ministry called, be called to be. And so uh, this week and next week, we're actually going to take a couple of weeks to look at this uh, encounter that God has uh, with Moses and what it, it means. So before we get to Moses, though, um, I want to suggest to you this morning that there are different uh, realities, different stories that go on around us all the time. Uh, In fact, probably if you're like me this morning, there are two major stories at work in your life. Uh, The first story that you maybe have going on this morning is the story of you or the story of me. Your story is not the story of me, but your story is the story of you, right? Uh, And in your story, you have a central character. They are beautiful and brave and smart and wonderful, and they look and sound quite a lot like you. Uh, And in your story, your lead character asks these kind of questions. Am I okay? Will I make it today? Will I have enough? Will I be able to get it done? Will they like me? You know, it's a story about you, right? In your story, we do things like this. Everything we need to survive, to thrive, to have just a tiny bit of pleasure or achievement, to impress and to one day leave behind a legacy. Now, you've probably got other characters in your story. You may have like supporting actors, your friends and your family, people who you ask those same questions for. Will they be okay? What do I need to do to provide and help them in their lives? But I also want to suggest to you that there's another story. There's another story that is going on all around us all the time. In fact, it's a way bigger story than your story and my story. It's a story that's been going on just very slightly longer than you have. A story that started billions of years ago, if not more than that. It's a story which also has a star. And sadly, neither you or I are the star of this story. This story has a star and his name is Jesus. And this is a story of uh, adventure. It's a story of grandeur, of creation, of rescue, of life and purpose and meaning. And what I want to talk to you about this week and next week is this concept that unless we as human beings manage to get these two different stories 
correctly lined up in our lives, in the correct order, in the correct intersections, then actually at best, what we find ourselves is, is like one of those kind of stools that's got wrong leg, it's got one leg that's too short and it's wobbly all over the place. Or at worst, we literally find ourselves spiritually, emotionally, physically, like falling over. And so I want to talk to you about how the kingdom of God, the story of God, and the story of us come together. So let's go back to let's go back to Moses and let's look at him a little bit. So Ted was here last week, um, and Ted got us into the Moses story. If you've ever studied this before, Moses is an Israelite born in a time when Egyptians have taken the Israelites into captivity and are using them as slave slaves. Um, Moses has this miraculous story, though, where he ends up growing up in the palace of Pharaoh. It's like growing up in the White House or growing up in Buckingham Palace. Like It's just full of opportunity. It's full of, of splendor and wealth. But Moses also knows that he's an Israelite. And, and one day when Moses is out in and around um, uh, the area, he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating an Israelite. And when he sees this beating taking place, he sees red, and he basically lashes out, and he kills the Egyptian slave driver. Now, instead of like stopping, instead of dealing with the issue, instead of coming before and admitting what he's done and who he is, he panics, and he runs, and he takes off out into the wilderness, and he lives for many, many years out, way out in an area which, probably if you've never been to that part of the world where Mount Sinai and the Bible and those kind of places, it's kind of like between here and Vegas. It's like that bit. Like not, not a lot of green and, and beauty and, and wonder, just a lot of wilderness and desert. And he lives there and he, becomes, uh, he gets married, he becomes a sheep farmer, and his life is actually really sad. It's a story of failure. It's a story of missed opportunity. It's a story of cowardice. But it's also a story that God has something that he wants to do in. And so we're going to have our reading this morning. Kay's going to bring for us, and if you've got your Bibles, always really good to have open with you. We're going to be reading in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, 1 through 17. Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, 
and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Thanks, Kay. That's fantastic. So in God's story, his people are in a bit of a mess. Uh, In fact, they're in a lot more of a mess. They are in slavery, they're in captivity, they're in some sort of spiritual and emotional wilderness. And maybe they're they're looking out, they're asking the question, like, who who is God going to send? How is this rescue mission going to work? But whilst they're on one side, Moses is elsewhere. Moses is out in what's called Mount Horeb in this little bit of the Bible, but a little bit later on it's called Mount Sinai. It's the place where the Ten Commandments are given. And, And one day when he's out, he's about 80 years old, and he's got sheep. I mean, it's not a great job being a shepherd in a place like the desert where there's no grass, is it? Um, but he, that's exactly what he's doing. And as he's out there, he confronts a bush that's burning. Now, I should imagine for Moses, it's probably not that interesting that there's a bush that's burning. If you've lived in Southern California for a while, you know about bushes that burn. But the thing that is different about this bush is that it's not burning up. And not just that it's not burning up, but there's voice, thundering voice comes from inside the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses realizes that actually there's something really significant going on for him right now. Now, Moses lived in a time when scriptures were not written down. He couldn't access God's voice in that way. There was no access to the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do all the time. But when God turned up, you knew something very special was going to happen. And sure enough, as Moses approaches this bush, God comes out, speaks out to Moses and says, Moses, dude, stop. You are on holy ground right now because I am literally here in front of you. Take off your shoes. And you can imagine what Moses' response must have been to being confronted with God himself. And what God does is he says to Moses, okay, dude, I'm going to outline to you what I have come to do. He says things like this, I have seen, God says, I have heard, I am concerned, and I have come to do something about it. And I should imagine Moses is going, oh, fantastic. Great. God is going to do something. He's turned up. This is really brilliant. We're really excited. You do it, God. I'm going to cheer you on from being out here in the wilderness. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. Except that then in verse 10, what God says is this. He says, so now, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Like it was this hilarious, but absolutely horrendous moment from Moses. Because at this point, he's going like, yeah, God, you're going to be great. This is going to be fantastic. I'm going to cheer you on. And then suddenly what God says to Moses is, oh, yeah, and by the way, you're the one. You're the one who's going to do it. And you can imagine Moses going like, oh, my goodness, no. It's like, I think, God, you've got the wrong person. It's like, if you are looking for someone who is brave and smart and courageous enough, who's a warrior or something like that, 
I am blatantly not the guy. And he has these brilliant excuses. He says things like this, I'm, I, am, I am a murderer, I'm a coward, um, I stutter. He's got this just incredible repast for God. But what he's totally missing is what God's saying. Because what God is on saying in his story is, hey Moses, I've got a story. I'm writing a story, I'm going to rescue my people, I'm going to do something absolutely brilliant, it's going to be awesome, and you get to join in. But what Moses says is, dude, it's on your shoulders and this is a big, big problem. But like Moses is, is really courageous in not giving in. Like he does not give in to God immediately. He just carries on with his complaints, on and on and on. And eventually what he says to God is he says, well, here's the thing, God. Like I'm a fugitive. I'm on the run. Suppose I come down from this desert bit and I go into the courts of Pharaoh, like the most grand place on earth, and I walk in as like a fugitive and and I say to the Pharaoh, hey, I know you've got the FBI after me, but here I am. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've, I'd like you to do something, Pharaoh. Can you let all those slave, slaves go? Because you need to do that, because God's telling you. If I go and do that, then who would I even say that you are? What's your name? And it's kind of an interesting moment, because to this point, God knows Moses' name. He's called it many times. He's found him, Moses, Moses. But Moses doesn't really know who God is. The Israelites had this word, Yahweh, for God, but it was really kind of like a description for God. It was like the one true God or the most high God. But Moses wanted to know, who actually are you? And why is that going to help me to have authority to change this situation? And it's really interesting because God gives him an answer. If you've got your Bibles open, you will notice it's probably, it might be literally the only place in your Bible where there's a different font used because it's so significant, it's so important, it's so profound. What God says to Moses is this, I am who I am. Now, in our English translations, we probably go, yeah, okay, that doesn't make any sense. You are who? It's like, I am who I am. It's not really telling us much. But actually, the, the, the word that's used is the word haya, if you think about a bit of kung fu, karate. Sounds like that, doesn't mean that. Um, and what it is, is it's the present tense, the active form of the verb to be. What God is saying to Moses is, I, I am, or I be, or literally, my name is be. Now, again, we can miss this, right? We can totally skirt past this because it doesn't kind of go into the translation machine very well. But what God is actually saying is this. He said, I, I am unchanging. I am ever-present. I am constant. I am unending. What, what God is saying to Moses is actually this. Moses, this is what you need to know. I am the center of everything. I am running the show. I am the same every day forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I am the creator and the sustainer of life. I am the savior. I am more than enough. I am inexhaustible and I am immeasurable. I am God, the very God who created everything that you see. And that's why he goes on in verse 15. He says, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And then he goes on and gives more of the story of what he's going to do. But I really want us to grasp this morning the enormity of what it means when God says, I am because it isn't trite, it isn't small, it's not a nice little bit of language. It's actually incredibly profound. When Jesus comes to earth, if you notice, he says things like this, I am 
bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection, the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And one of the reasons it's so profound, because as God gives his name, I am, what Moses also is introduced to is his name. And not Moses, but Moses realizes this. If God's name is I am, then my name is I am not. I am not running everything. I am not the head of anything. I am not in charge of anything. I'm not the maker. I'm not the savior. I'm not holding it all together. I'm not all knowing. I am not God. And here's something that I would love us to be able to know for ourselves. You are not God either. <laughs> you may be just, just where you are. Just turn to the person next to you. My name is I am not. Can you do that quickly? It doesn't really flow off the tongue, does it? Okay. Now, so far, that may not seem like great news to you. It's like, okay, Ben, you just told me that I'm the center of my own story, and now you're telling me that I am not God. It's like, thanks, Ben. I already knew that I'm a mess. Like, I already came to church this morning. I didn't come with my I am Jesus t-shirt on this morning. Like, I didn't think that I was the savior of the universe. I already know, Ben, that I cannot fix myself, can't fix my family, I can't find work or heal myself or deal with my addictions, let alone fix the world around me or whatever it is that you, you came feeling when you arrived at church this morning. It may not sound like great news to know that your name is, not, is I am not, but here's the most amazing thing about Christianity, that it's not actually primarily about you. It's not primarily about you. And I want to show you this morning that if we can flip our whole conversation about the stories that we live in, then actually it can be an incredible answer to things like anxiety and depression and mess and stress and anger and all the things that we're experiencing out in the world around us right now. But it starts with this revelation of who God is, but also who we are. Now, you probably know this, um, but you you are kind of actually um, kind of small and kind of young, all of you. I mean, you know, some of you are bigger than others. Um, ben Ellis is huge. Um, NASA did have uh, been doing this amazing um, exploration work for, for decades now. But they have discovered that the furthest light that they can measure uh, away from here um, is 13 billion times 5.88 trillion miles away. I can't even, that's how many zeros. It's a lot of, lot of zeros, right? That's how far away the furthest light that they have ever measured in, which leads them to believe that, that this is like light that was emitted as, as the Big Bang happened or however you see the creation story, which the, they, makes them think that the world was probably created about 13 billion years ago. Now, you can argue that from a scientific perspective if you want, but let's assume it's right or roughly right for a minute. What that means is that God started working visibly in our universe and our space around 13 billion years ago. 13 billion years ago, God started writing the Genesis 1 creation story. And it's a huge story. It means that like, you know, you may be 18, you may be 81, you may even be slightly past 81, I don't know this morning. But you are kind of young compared with God. God has been outworking his story for a very long time before you, and God will continue to outwork his story for a very long time. Compared with God, you are kind of tired. You are kind of young, but you're also kind of tiny. I, you know, the little bit of space that we live in called the Milky Way, 
um, if it is 130,000 light years across. That means if you were cruising down at 186,000 miles an hour, some of you do on the 210, um, it would take you 100,000 years just to get across the Milky Way, right? The expanse of the things that God has made are so extraordinary and fantastic that our brains like, literally can't, can't get around it. Isaiah 40 says this, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. I think on a map scale, that's actually quite, that's quite generous, really. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. Now, that doesn't sound great. Thanks, Ben. I'm dust as well. I'm tiny, I'm young, I'm dust, I'm powerless, all those kind of things. But here's the clincher, right? What does God say to Moses in verse 12? He says this. Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. You see, astonishingly, even though we know the God of the universe is out there, who's created things that were just beyond our brains, beyond anything that we can measure or imagine, God says to you, and he says to me this morning, and to every human being, I will be with you. He says, I know you, and I love you, and even though you are intensely tiny, you're intensely small, and intensely young, I have always loved you. I love you now, and I will love you forever. And that is great news. That is great news. You don't seem like it's great news, but it's great, it's great news. Because of this very fact, right? God, plus anyone else, anything else, is on the winning team, right? Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how small you are, how much of a failure you are, how broken you are. But if God is working in your life, if God is in charge, then success is guaranteed. Then the future is assured. You know, we can so quickly say, can't we, ma'am? My brokenness, my failure, my jealousy, my addictions, all of those kind of things, they, they count me out because God can't possibly still love me. But yet God says to this murderer, this broken fugitive on the run, I will be with you. I will be with you. And God is with us. In fact, what Moses realizes is that actually he's got a bigger name than just I am not. You have a bigger name than I am not. Your full name, your first and your last name, is actually this. It's a bit of a mouthful. I am not, but I know I am. See if your brain can comprehend that one for a moment. Okay. I am not. You are not God. But you can know God. You are invited to know I am. I am not, but he knows my name. I am not, but he pursues me with his love. I am not, but I have been purchased and redeemed. I am not, but I have been invited into his story. It's a bit cheesy, but you notice that history is his story, right? I know it's bad. Uh, I am not, but I know the creator of the universe. I am not, but I know I am. You see, your story, the story that we all get caught up with, we get overwhelmed with, feels like this incredible pressure just to get through every day. It feels so massive, but yet actually it is tiny compared with this awesome, phenomenal, amazing story that God is writing in all creation. And God's invitation to Moses, and it's the same invitation that he gives to every one of us, is actually to stop being so overwhelmed, so consumed with our own stories. 
and actually to choose to join in with God's story, with God's eternal story, with what God is doing in all of creation. That's what God invites all of us into continually. So, I mean, how do you join in with with God's story? What does that even mean? Well, I want to say that the first thing that that means is this. It means become a Christian. I mean, do. Becoming a Christian is not some kind of like head choice about religion, which religion you want to follow. It's actually a very moment when you say, I can't do this on my own. Like, this is too much for me. I cannot save myself. I cannot fix myself. I cannot impress God enough. I can't sort the world out on my own. Instead, I am going to accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus, and I'm going to jump over from, joining, from writing my story to joining in with God's story. When you become a Christian, it's an act of revelation because you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, there's this whole bigger thing going on and God loves me and God has changed the world and God is writing this incredible story and I get to be part of it. But it's also a story of submission because you actually have to say, I am no longer going to be the boss. I am no longer going to be building my empire. I'm no longer going to be in charge of everything. Instead, I'm not going to be the star of the show anymore. I'm actually going to join in with God's story, and I'm going to be a supporting cast member in the greatest story that's ever made. Amen. (laughs) Thank you. The second thing is, I want to suggest, and this will sound strange for a minute, is actually part of the way we join in with God's story is we learn to embrace our smallness. I mean, not your physical smallness, if you feel that you're small this morning. There's a guy called um, John in the New Testament of the Bible. Moses, as we'll look at when we get to um, Advent, is a kind of person who points forward to Jesus. He's one of the first ever to point forward to Jesus. One of the last people to ever point forward to Jesus is a guy called John, John the Baptist. Um, And in the first century, um, John is a big deal. I mean, he is, I don't know if he'd have had his own television channel today, but he had his own clothing line, you know, like the, the slightly strange clothing. He had his own food thing going on. He definitely would have had a podcast, I reckon, anyway. Like, he was, he was a big deal. He was a big deal. And he had followers. He had disciples, people who came around. He did his baptism thing. He had this whole ministry, like, you know, John the Baptist International Ministry would have definitely been a thing in the, in the, in the first century. But one day, these Jewish leaders, they come to see John, and they say, hey, John, are you, are you the one? Like, are you the Messiah? Are you the very one that we have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds or thousands of years to come to earth to rescue us? And you know what he says? He says, I am not. I am not. He says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Like, I I am not the Messiah, but I have come to point people towards it. Like a few chapters later in John chapter 3, um, Jesus' like, ministry is kicking off big scale. Now, Jesus has now got all these followers, all these disciples. In fact, some of John's disciples are leaving John behind to go and, go and join in with Jesus. And, and John's disciples, the remaining ones, are getting a bit mad. They're like, hey, dude, man, you're getting unfollowed big time here. Like, you, need, you need to do something to increase your engagement out here. You know, this is not okay. And you know what John says? That's what John says. He said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Like, isn't that so incredibly countercultural? Like, we live in a world which is all about self-promotion, 
right? It's all about how many followers you can get, how big a name you can be, how much influence you can have on the world around you. What does John say the biggest name around at that time? He says, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Now, what John's not saying and what I don't want you to hear this morning is we need to feel like worthless, you know, we need to feel like we're failures, we're powerless, we just need to stay in bed every day and mope around and wait for Jesus to return and then everything will be okay. That's not what John says at all. That's not what God says to you. In fact, what God says to John and what God says to you and God says to Moses is, I love you and I have redeemed you and I have bought you at a price. But it's actually as we embrace the fact that we are actually a little bit small and a little bit powerless, that actually it gives us just this moment to stop and realize, oh no, This is God's story. When we stop just looking at ourselves and our problems and our just failures and just being overwhelmed by all the stuff that consumes us every day and we actually take our gaze up and look at God, suddenly we find this incredible freedom, this incredible moment. Um, About eight years ago, I was... um, I was actually almost exactly eight years ago. I was in, a, um, in northern France, in a very industrial and not very pretty bit of northern France. Uh, I was uh, at seminary, was there with about 500 other seminary students, and Laura was 39 weeks pregnant with Chloe, and I was feeling very guilty because I was on the wrong, in the wrong country. Uh, and, and I was there for this whole leadership discussion, and it was this really intensive week with all these students about leadership. It was like, what kind of leader are you going to be? What kind of impact are you going to make? What kind of churches are you going to leave? And I was like feeling overwhelmed. I was like, I don't know what kind of leader I want to be. And I was thinking I'm about to be a father to two children. And that's just outrageously overwhelming in its own sense. And I was just like getting a bit freaked out. And so one afternoon, it was like, you know, pretty cold and gray. In fact, a lot colder and grayer than it is here today. Proper cold and gray. Um, I went out for a walk in this very like nondescript town, and I went along this long road, and, and the first thing I came to as I neared this town center was this old graveyard. Now, some of you don't like graveyards, and I know it's Halloween today and you know, all that kind of stuff. But as I walked into this, this graveyard, I just started to read you know, the, the gravestones, you know, like all these people with great French names. Fifi le bruit. That's outrageous, isn't it? That's probably a bit racist, sorry. I, Take that, scratch that off the recording. Don't do that. <laughs> but all, all these people had these, these names. You know, some people had lived these lives of 80 years. Some people had lived for just a few days. These tragic stories, these great stories. Sometimes there were these little inscriptions saying a little bit about who they were. And as I stood in the middle of this freezing cold graveyard, I just, God met me in the most profound way. I encountered the Holy Spirit in ways that I've only ever done in a couple of times in my life. And I just, just felt like the Lord say something really strange to me, which is like this. This is going to be you, Ben, in 100 years. I thought, well, that doesn't, thanks God, that doesn't really help me. But I just had this dawning realization as I stood there in the presence of the Lord. Actually, that's true. Like in a hundred years, yeah, I will probably be a name on a grave somewhere in the world. In 200 years, maybe people will know me by name. In 500 years, they'll look me up on ancestry.com. And that's probably is, that's what it's going to be. But actually, that's okay. That's okay. Because in a hundred years' time, you know, depending on how you see the space-time continuum or whatever, like I, I will be in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I will be sitting in eternity where everything is healed and well and is restored. And you know what, what's going to be happening on the earth? Assuming Jesus hasn't returned. God will still be out working his plans. 
God will still be building his church. God will still be healing people and redeeming people and reconciling people to himself. And actually, God doesn't need me to do that. He can do that with or without me. But the privilege and the moment that I received as I stood in that graveyard is that actually I get to play a part if I want to. Small as I am, insignificant as I am, tiny as I am, I get to play a part. You see, we get so caught up, don't we, in the anxiety and the stress. And at the heart of it, I think it does come somewhere around this kind of feeling that it's all about us. It's all on our shoulders. Even if we don't feel like we have a God complex, we can feel like, man, I'm in charge of all this. I've got to get it sorted. But when we stop, when we consider our smallness, actually we realize that there's a possibility that there might be something bigger that there might be something better, that there might be someone who is in charge, who knows what he's doing. So embrace your smallness. And then finally, give your life. Give your life to knowing the I am. God's invitation to Moses was actually really straightforward. It was this, know me, trust me, have faith um, in me. Now, I know you, you probably know this, but you know, there are lots of different layers to which you can know about something, right? To which you can know something. Um, about eight years ago as well, just a bit before I went to Northern France, Laura and I were actually in Boston, and we got to go to Fenway Park to our first ever baseball game. Uh, it was quite an experience. It was the preseason, so not, no one else was really watching the game except for us, as far as I could see. Um, but we, we, were, we were like in these stands, but I, I had to admit, like, I knew nothing about baseball. I mean, literally nothing. So much so that when the game finished, Laura and I were there with some of our family, and we had no idea who'd won the game. Literally, literally no idea. All we could see were all these numbers up on the scoreboard. We're like, fantastic, look at all these different numbers. I wonder which one tells us who won. Um, so we actually had to go and find a steward and say, I'm really sorry, we're very British, we don't know what we're doing. Can you tell me who won the game? Um, and he explained it was well, literally just the number of people, times they went round. And we're like, oh, that's it. Oh, we could have done that one on our own. Okay, we didn't, we didn't work that one out. So since then, I'm pleased to report to you, having lived in LA now for two and a half years, I now know quite a lot more about baseball than I, I did then. You know, I have had the privilege of watching the Dodgers win the World Series, right? It was a big deal. I've had the privilege this year of watching the Dodgers beat the Giants. I'm so sorry, Ted Chen, if you're watching this online last week, you know. Uh, I had the despair, like some of you did, of watching the Dodgers lose last week and having to you know, go through the pain of that. But I've kind of lost, I've learned some things along the way. You know, I, I know a little bit about Mookie Betts and his ability to hit home runs. You know, I've, I've learned about some of the stats and the data and some of the roster and some of the teams. You know, I, I know a little bit more than I did. I, know so, I, I think I know more because last week, Rachel and Kirby and I and, and, and Laura, we were with, uh, with one of our mission partners and I actually had the game on. Uh, as it was the final game last week, and I, I shouldn't have had it on, but I did. And everyone started flocking around me to see if they could watch the game with me, and they expected me to be the commentator on the game. So I had to do my very best job of pretending like I know something to do with the Dodgers. I wasn't doing a good job. But I actually, I do know a bit more. But here's the thing, I don't know anything, really, about the Dodgers compared with many of you. If I studied the Dodgers my whole life, I would still only know a tiny fraction of all the things that are to know about the players, about what they like, about what they don't like, about what motivates them, about the history of the team. I don't know very much at all. And similarly, you and I also have the same opportunity and choice about how much we know about God. God's invitation to you and I is to know him. 
Through Jesus, through scripture, we are invited into this relationship where we are invited to know the very one who created everything and anything that has ever existed. But there's always more to know. Always more. Well, how do you know God? Well, I'm not just talking about like, let's all go to Fuller and learn theology. But when God says, I want you to know me, what, what he, he's, he's saying this is he actually wants you to know him like a relationship. When we come into this place of worship and when Ben leads us and what we're doing is not just singing truths, we're actually entering into God's presence. And we expect that when we sing, God is going to turn up and do things amongst us. And that's an incredible gift. When we unpack the scriptures together, we believe that God is going to speak into our lives. When we say, come Holy Spirit, we expect that the Holy Spirit is actually going to come and do something. And we'll pray in a few minutes' time. God's invitation to you and I is to know him well. Now, you know, some people sadly treat God like, okay, yeah, well, you know, you're the bit part player in my story. If I've got enough time, if I'm not too busy, if I'm not too overwhelmed with my story, you know, I'll come and, I'll come and have a chat once in a while. That's not what God says. God says, dedicate your whole life. Give your whole being to my story, to knowing me more. That's why as your pastor, I, I do keep going on about like, hey, read scripture. Let's read scripture together. Let's worship together. Let's come along on Sundays because, hey, when two or more are gathered in your name, God says, I will be there amongst you. God's invitation is that you can know him and keep knowing him, and knowing more and more, and you'll never get there fully. But you, the more you know about God, the more that you know him, actually the less your limitations, your smallness, your brokenness needs to define who you are. The more you know God, the freer you become because you realize he is good. He is powerful. He is in charge. That's why like in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus himself says this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, aren't you much more valuable than they? Because your father feeds them. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? The more we know of God, the more our faith rises. The more we understand, the more we realize we're already on the winning team and we don't have to fight to win ourselves. The less anxious we, have to, we become about our own limitations and our weaknesses. It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. And some of you came this morning and you're struggling. Like you are really struggling. You probably maybe even didn't even know how you're going to get through today for so many different reasons. And I just think, you know, this morning that, that God wants to tell you who he really is and what he can really do. Maybe this morning this was you. I need hope. And maybe God would want to say to you this morning, I am. Who could possibly be smart enough to figure all of this out? I am. What works? I am. What lasts? I am. I need a fresh start. I am. Nothing is real anymore. I am. No one is listening to me. I am. My marriage is sinking. I am. I've always hoped for a marriage in the future, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I am. I cannot hold on anymore. I am. I'm pouring into others, but who's even vaguely pouring into me anymore? I am. 
I am not even sure why I'm here. I am. I need someone to hold me. I am. God says this to you and me this morning. I am the first and the last and the beginning and the end. Should we pray?